0: So we'll begin this evening's talk with a question. Uh, The same question that I asked at the end of the talk that I gave a couple of nights ago. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? And certainly Sayadaw, Uh, attended to that question in good measure last evening with his Dhamma Talk on the um, hindrances. This evening's Dhamma Talk will explore at least to some degree the second, the third, and the fourth Foundations of Mindfulness. So the second establishment or domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings, vedna nupasana. This foundation of mindfulness is potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes in through the six sense doors seeing, hearing, tasting touching, smelling and thought provides some kind of specific information to the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through the contact of the sense doors with all of the various phenomena that we experience. So from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and very clearly classified into three groups. The first being pleasant feeling or agreeable feeling. The second, unpleasant feeling or disagreeable feeling. And the third, neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling and often called neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or in response to mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment, or aversion to sensory experiences is a result that often follows along directly from these feelings. So, for instance, when one experiences a pleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with a, some object, most people... For most people, there's an almost immediate emotional attachment to the feeling, or to the object, or both, or to both. And when the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it always does, the desire to get it back, or to get another one, can uh, come up uh, quite quickly, either quite overtly or subtly. And a craving, uh, a craving for, a thirst for, tanha in Pali, a thirst arises with craving immediately preceded by dissatisfaction and sometimes also very quickly followed by a state of dissatisfaction. And so our peace, our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being is disturbed. And the nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, an inner restlessness, which we could translate into modern language as stress, mental and physical stress. With a clear and focused, mindful attention, the experience, in fact, of craving itself could be experienced directly, maybe as a degree of, some degree of a burning contraction. And so again, the nature of stress, known directly from one's own experience. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, most people almost immediately experience emotional dislike or some form of aversion. Maybe fear, or maybe boredom, or hatred, or anger, or disappointment. We want to get rid of, or we want to get away from, the object, or the feeling, or both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. And so again, we're experiencing stress. At some point along the way of my practice, I found it quite amazing to learn that so much of the stress in this life comes directly from one's relationship to pleasant and unpleasant feelings. When the feeling is to at least some degree uh, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but neutral, often, I think, for many people, the tendency is to uh, ignore what's going on, to not connect to the present moment's experience. And maybe sometimes this is accompanied by a subtle or not so... a subtle state of not wanting... or just not interested to see reality in that moment. I think it's pretty fair to say that most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're very likely to pay attention whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant and if it's not intense we often uh, don't notice we might even think well nothing's happening sometimes i call up a friend or one of my sons and say so what's been going on what's happening and Regularly I get an answer, oh, nothing. And I say, that's not true. (laughs) And they go, "Eh, nothing really, you know. We go through life with a lot of nothing. Because we're not paying attention. And often in that nothing's happening, there's maybe an underlying, and sometimes not so underlying, Craving for something, something to happen. Without an intimate and careful, mindful attention to feelings, they have the power to disturb us emotionally. They have the power to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings. Is that we often forget that they change. The very same object that produced pleasant feelings in our mind sometimes within moments can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind and vice versa of course. And so again we experience attachment, clinging, or the various aversive states. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering or remembering. The connection that mindfulness offers to see things just as they are. Quite a number of years ago now, <clears throat> when I was sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, it's been remodeled now, but years ago they used to have um, a small back dining room with some shelves in it um, where yogis would keep their special stashes of things that they uh, felt like they, were, they needed or felt like they might want. Um, so I had my stash back there on one of those shelves and um, one day on top of my stash there was a note for me from the person whose stash was next to mine. At this point, I had no idea who that person was. I'd never paid attention to who that person, uh, person getting anything from that stash. And the note was offering me some green tea. A very pleasant feeling arose. I was being noticed. I was noticed, and this person was offering a gift for me. And on top of that, I liked green tea. So I answered the note. A few days later, a second note came on top of my stash again. This person had noticed, and it was offering me a hat. (laughs) This person had noticed that I had been going outside without one, and it was a moving into the fall season and getting cool and so this person offered me a hat (laughs) well not such a pleasant feeling arose in my mind with that note I felt impinged upon not liking the attention at that point but I answered the note politely and said thank you I have a hat then a few days later a third note appeared on top of my stash. And this was a question, a practice question. Well, a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in my mind. And a quick, uh, unmindful reaction in the mind to write back a not-so-polite note to this person came up. (laughs) But fortunately... um, mindfulness and wise discernment kicked in quickly enough and I didn't write back a nasty note. In fact, I just simply relaxed and uh, let go and I didn't respond at all. And the note stopped at that point. Never got another note. At the end of the retreat I spoke with this person um, And uh, he said that he had gone through a similar process uh, and was grateful, in fact, uh, uh, that I didn't answer him the last time because he'd gone through some of his own personal turmoil and was happy, very happy not to write any more notes. As I think you all would probably agree with, when you feel pleasant or unpleasant as a result of some contact through uh, some sense or object, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object nor is it within the internal object of attention such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling, the feeling tone, is in the mind. So what is it that's often the root, uh, the root of this stressful process, this stressful process that I uh, just described. What's the root that uh, arises in relationship to our experiences? In my three-month story, uh, first there were the feelings that arose of pleasant and unpleasant. Then very quickly, followed by the feeling tone, came liking or disliking. Followed by the action uh, of answering the first two notes and the aversive reaction in the mind in relationship to the third note after a very initial, simple perception of pleasant and unpleasant. When we begin to see that all of the feelings or feeling tones that we experience are within us, within the mind, that we ourselves are primarily responsible for the feelings that we experience, we really begin to know that we can't blame others or blame something for the way that we feel. And we can't blame others or blame something for the subsequent actions of the body and mind that might follow the simple perceived feeling tone. What, for many of us, I think are quite habituated storylines, such as, He made me angry, or She made me feel terrible, or He made me feel so happy, or This place, these people make me feel so peaceful, or so miserable. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feeling tones that arise, The habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They begin to actually fall, kind of fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, putting the blame on others for reactive thoughts and actions that may follow feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, it isn't realistic meaning it's not really the way that things work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, the myths that we might have about ourselves and about others, the various beliefs that we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of or not capable of, how we define ourselves. We have the opportunity to let go of, to relinquish the various beliefs that we have about our bodies, our mind, our emotions. Beliefs that we may have held on very tightly to and maybe kind of stuffed into the closet of our mind. And then, and instead, just simply pay attention to our experiences just as they are in the moment. It's so simple, really. It's hard to believe that that's all it takes. And, as I think each of you know, though it's simple, it's just not so easy. The potentially uh, potentially illuminating aspect... Of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feeling... is that it's at this point in our experience... that we have the direct, immediate opportunity... to drop our habitu- habituated reactions of attachment, clinging... and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience... Of noticing the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that we can, in moments, just see, experience, and know the phenomena, know the attendant feeling tone, and that just be that. In that moment, then, There's no mental suffering. The heart, the mind, aren't disturbed. It's a moment of ease, actually, a moment of peace. Another story, Uh, a true story, (laughs) again. Uh, giving birth the first, uh, for the first time about 46 years ago now was my first formal uh, teaching and practice in mindfulness, although it actually wasn't called that. <laughs> the Lamaze, uh birthing method was a training, and still is, a training in being really fully present, awake, and aware in a process. The birthing process that in the 46 years ago was happening in and of itself. And though I had no control over the process, I was certainly very involved in it, with it, in it. Throughout the training the Lamaze birthing training we were told that any resistance to the process that was taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant which I very quickly discovered when the birthing process actually began getting myself out of the way of this process while at the same time being totally present, engaged, and aware in the midst of it was very intense, not easy, but really actually quite okay. And actually, most of the time, fairly neutral in the light of pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Selfless engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be incredibly interesting and really, truly filled with a great deal of wonderment. A very powerful lesson that has continued to inform me over and over again through the years. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering. Because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant, or to push away, avoid, or ignore the unpleasant. Learning to mindfully observe feelings with, a more, with more balance, with more equanimity. And thus less attachment, less aversion, less identification is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So this second establishment or second domain of mindfulness in our practice, contemplation of feelings simply in themselves, the feelings in the feelings, Vedna Nupasana. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the six sense doors with what we could call or what is often called bare awareness with bare awareness, providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences, just simply being known. And sometimes we might experience this, actually experience this. But at times, and maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or be modified by various mental factors, various states of mind, and this being the third domain, the third foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind, cittanupassana. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to experience, to phenomena happening. So for example, we go to the marketplace, the marketplace of the lunch food display here on retreat, the marketplace of where to do walking meditation this hour, or which shirt to put on today. Living here in Taos, um, over all these years has provided some uh, excellent practice opportunities for me. A place where many people visit here in Taos specifically to come to the marketplace of the abundant forms of human-created beauty that abound here. I went through a period of practice here soon after I moved to Taos about oh eighteen eighteen or so years ago, where I'd walk down the street in town and looking into the shop windows and watch my mind and body. So, awareness of seeing. Just seeing. Various created forms and colors basically bear attention. And then I would notice the coloration of the mind the coloration of wanting, (laughs) the coloration of leaning into and sometimes even the strong desire of seeming need in relationship to what I was seeing. So greed, coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A great practice in the midst of the marketplace, any marketplace. to sustain and deepen in and with our practice to really see things as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of heart and mind that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So for instance, if another person notices that you, or I'll just speak about myself, that I'm, that I'm feeling or maybe even experiencing or expressing, I mean, uh, greed or some form of aversion, it really doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. It doesn't matter at all. What really matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states bringing mindful attention right to the greed or the fear or the anger or the grief and as you know it's not so easy it's not always so easy tremendous interest energy and humility honesty is needed to sustain the observation to see yourself as you are and because you see yourself as you are without judgment, you don't try to project a different image either to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Takar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest, closest students and who has been a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this about humility and these are her words that is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer the austerity of humility to see things as they are to see my inner being as it is good or bad to observe it as it is without defending it without justifying it without interpreting or judging it without taking pride in it and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. There's a story that the Dalai Lama tells about himself. He says that at one point he was taken window shopping in some big city uh, to an area where there were lots of tiny little shops that sell all kinds of small mechanical parts and systems. And the person that took the uh, Dalai Lama to this part of the city knew that he was really particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. As you may have read, or at some point, he uh, has enjoyed taking apart clocks and watches and then putting them back together again. And the Dalai Lama said that um, this... Trip to these little shops in the city he said that he found himself uh, looking in the windows uh, of the shops and at first simply seeing with a very open curiosity and interest and then all of a sudden he said he he uh, he realized that he wanted everything he said he wanted all of it he said I didn't even know what any of it was for I just wanted it all <laughs> Are you mindful of your mind? So you might ask yourself now and then, how driven am I by my desires? Or how driven am I by my aversions? Taking a few moments of a look at the marketplace of our inner world of meditation. A moment of maybe deep calm. A mindful moment of directly knowing this wholesome quality. This wholesome quality of calm. No thought about it, just it as it is. Just tranquility, just calm, being known. And then maybe quickly followed by the unwholesome mind state of grasping wanting it to never leave, directly knowing this experience, too, without any judgment. Mindfulness can know the mental factor or coloration in the mind of wanting, of greed, within the greed itself or the mental factor, the colorations of anger, or hatred, or fear, or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself. How it acts, its changing nature, its taste or flavor in the mind, and its effect in, its effect on the body, and its ending, its cessation, in any moment. A moment of mind consciousness might be colored by the wholesome mind states of faith or delight, or colored by dullness or some, form, some other form of aversion. As I'm sure you've experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath or a sensation or a sound, a taste, a memory, a plan, an image in the mind. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear and detailed uh, treatise on the workings of the mind from the Buddhist perspective, there is a long and detailed list of the many and various wholesome and unwholesome mental factors that might very quickly come along to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment experience as the process of the Dhamma and the development of concentration and mindfulness unfold and blossom. So for instance, mindfulness knowing the wholesome mind states of calm, of joy, of delight, of tranquility, of faith, appreciation, peacefulness, equanimity. And the unwholesome mind states of judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear, anger, hatred, or irritation. All of this, or any of this, in relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences of seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, tasting, touching consciousness, thinking consciousness or mind consciousness. I think it can be uh, quite helpful to understand that consciousness in the Buddha Dhamma is understood, is spoken about and attended to as consciousness-related to the experiences that are perceived through each of the six sense doors. So we have seeing consciousness, hearing, smelling, touching and tasting consciousness, and mind or thought consciousness. And again, a reminder that The essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging, no attitude of discriminating between right or wrong or good or bad. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, and no manipulation of experience. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana, mindful awareness of mental factors, states of mind, seeing and knowing the colorations of consciousness, seeing and knowing them in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points us to is called mindfulness or contemplation of Dhammas. Dhammanupassana. And Dhamma in this case can be translated as the truth or the way of things or the natural laws the nature of things. This domain of mindful experience or mindful awareness can be grounded or rooted quite specifically in any of the six sense door experiences, such as one's perception and consciousness of hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, or thinking. Mindfulness of Dhammas can be rooted in the feeling tones that we explored at the beginning of this evening's talk. This fourth establishment of mindful awareness, contemplation of Dhammas, may also be grounded or rooted in the five hindrances. Sleepiness, restlessness or agitation, doubt or the grasping mind or the aversive mind. And this domain or foundation of mindfulness can also be be rooted in any of the seven factors of enlightenment, the first being mindfulness, the second investigation of states, the third energy or effort, the fourth joy, the fifth tranquility, the sixth concentration, and the seventh equanimity. Sometimes this fourth domain of mindfulness seems quite mysterious to people. So I'm uh, hoping that I can explain it in a simple and clear enough way so that it's no longer mysterious. It's actually not very mysterious at all. (laughs) The particular and wonderful specialty, we could say, Uh, about this fourth domain of mindfulness, is that it sees any of these experiences through the doors of Dhamma, through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the nature of things. Whether experiences in the physical or in the mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the door of the truth some, one of the doors of the truth so for instance just speaking briefly this evening we can't touch all of it but I picked one particular door speaking briefly this evening about <clears throat> just one of the important and I think very insightful <clears throat> doors that we can walk through so to say in this fourth domain of mindfulness And this is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness we can directly, experientially pay attention to and clearly recognize that every experience of Body and mind is always changing, is impermanent. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything around us, begins and ends, arises and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to clearly see and accept and surrender to this perfectly natural phenomenon. What appears to be a very steady flow of experience, even with the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be when we start to look through this fourth domain of mindfulness at our experience. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion, the delusion being as though it's happening in an ongoing continuous flow. When in reality It's all beginning and ending, arising and passing away on the most minute level, second by second by second. And we can know this through experience. And some words from the Buddha in relationship to this. Bhikkhus, yogis. I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable to attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, sees mental, mind phenomena as impermanent, sees mind-thought consciousness as impermanent, and sees mind-contact and whatever feelings arise with mind-contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. This yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Every experience is anicca, impermanent, which is the first universal characteristic. And because of anicca, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And yet we continue on through our lifetime, searching for something or some experience that will finally satisfy finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called Dukkha and is the second universal characteristic. So, for instance, viewing specific sensorial experience through the doorway of the fact that it's actually, ultimately, unsatisfactory is practice rooted in the fourth domain of mindfulness, Dhamma-nupasana. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know through this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta. The truth that all experience, all phenomena, is selfless. All phenomena all experience arises totally dependent on many conditions that have occurred over time and that come together in a moment of the arising of a particular experience. All phenomena, all experience is totally interdependent and contingent in its existence and is constantly changing both within its own seeming solidity as well as in its seeming set or static place in this world. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid, static selflessness. Selfness. (laughs) As we begin to directly experience and to know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the third universal characteristic of anatta, not-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The not-self characteristic of all phenomena shows up actually quite naturally and often in unexpected and in subtle ways. And so we begin to really understand, to really truly understand that no matter how hard we might try, there's absolutely nothing that we can cling to. Our relationship begins to change. Our relationship to life begins to change. And we start to relax much more deeply into just simply... And more clearly, directly, being here with things, just as they are. There's a wonderful um, metaphorical teaching uh, about this that I'd like to share with you. It's uh, it's the Narcissus story as rendered by uh, the uh, author and poet Stephen Mitchell. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot, Kneeling there, gazing into the so taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. In a conversation with one of his students, the Buddha offers a brief, uh, important and clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. And it's in the context of a a larger uh, teaching, but I'm just going to share this small part. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. As we go along in our practice, and when we're ready... This fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of Dhammas, opens up the beautiful door to the freedom, uh, to freedom, to the simple and beautiful door of liberation, which we may experience just briefly at times, with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive through our life. From this perspective we could say that every single experience every single phenomena holds the dhamma holds the truth the dhamma the true nature of things the way of things is within is within everything it's simply here to be seen and known if we just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly, if we just take the time to look really carefully. The truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind and heart. And with each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara is nibbana. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives, within the whirlpool of samsara, if we stand still, so to say, cool, calm, concentrated, focused and mindfully attentive. In that moment we're no longer continuing to be conditioned by ignorance, by ignoring, which is what ignorance means, we've ignored, and no longer being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant, caught in the whirlpool of I like, I don't like, no longer caught unaware in the whirl of continually unwittingly moving around and around and around the wheel in the midst of samsara we can stop and pay an extra ordinary kind of attention a mindful attention and wake up mindfulness is the primary tool the good medicine for our awakening And as it was so very graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, we take the medicine and purify the sickness and heal ourselves. The process will inevitably unfold and naturally blossom as we practice in the right way. We have the possibility to live with the deepest ease of well-being the deepest wisdom and compassion. We have the possibility to be truly awake, free, healed in this very life. We have the possibility of wandering into the perfectly natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind, an undisturbed heart. The world outside going on just as it is, thoughts and feelings and sensations arising changing, coming and going no different than anything else in the world nothing to argue with and nothing to cling to Saida Upandita speaks about the fact that essentially there's just one Dhamma that we need to practice which is uh, maybe a great relief to those who think that they have to practice many, many things, many dhammas uh, to be liberated. In Pali, the word for this one dhamma is apamada, which is sometimes translated as vigilance, and which can be understood, as it's elaborated on in the commentaries to the suttas, as a concentrated, clear, focused Mindfulness. So, from this perspective, we can say that mindfulness is the one Dhamma that we need to practice. And some words from the Buddha again in speaking about mindfulness as a factor of enlightenment. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in oneself, a bhikkhu, or a yogi, knows that it is present. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is absent, a yogi knows that it's absent in himself or herself. And one knows how the unarisen factor of mindfulness comes to arise and knows how the development of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes about. Rooted in careful attention. Careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accomplished in careful attention with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and discernment. One penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that one has never penetrated and sundered. The mass of hatred that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of delusion that one has never before penetrated and sundered. Monks, yogis, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too when a yogi, develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all the other factors of enlightenment, he, she slants, slopes and inclines toward Nibbāna. And I'd like to uh, close this evening's talk with a a little short poem from Rumi. It's an instruction. And of course, being Rumi, it's very metaphorical. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on, upside down. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Each of you put your shoes on upside down and walk directly into your experience through the door of truth, the doors of truth.